and welcome to Grand Final History. I'm Kieran McGee, and in this episode, we go back to 1904, where Collingwood will be trying for a hat-trick of premierships, Fitzroy will be looking to redeem themselves after losing the Grand Final on the last kick of the day, and St Kilda will try to move further away from the wooden spoon. And 1904 will be remembered as the year one of today's AFL powerhouses chose to forfeit their Grand Final match. More on that later. The international sporting event of 1904 was the third modern Olympic Games, which ended up being a drawn-out and disappointing affair in St. Louis in the US. Held alongside the World Fair, it lasted from July to November, and many athletes were housed in tents in the local park. Corey Gardner, a wingman in Melbourne's 1900 Premiership team, was Australia's sole representative, becoming the first of eight VFL players to compete at the Olympics. He ran in the 110 metre hurdles and competed in the long jump. He was the Australian hurdles champion in multiple years around the turn of the century, but did not make the finals at the Olympics. Preparation for the 1904 season commenced early in the year. The VFL delegates met in March and the two representatives from the New South Wales League were also present. A game in Sydney between Melbourne and Essendon was proposed. It was decided to write to the two clubs to gauge their interest. In April, the League held its annual general meeting and the League Secretary, Edwin Wilson, presented the annual report that dealt with the growth of the game in New South Wales, Queensland, New Zealand and South Africa. The enthusiasm for international expansion at League headquarters was established very early. Edwin Wilson was both Secretary of Collingwood and the first VFL Secretary, a position he held for 34 years up to 1929. The E.L. Wilson Shield was created in 1930 to be awarded to each year's premiership team. It was discontinued in 1978 when there was no more room on the shield, but it was expanded and re-established in 2018 as a perpetual trophy and is now on display at AFL headquarters. The only change to the rules in 1904 was the introduction of two boundary umpires who would decide when the ball was out of bounds and throw the ball back in. This was considered essential given how fast the game had become and the need to relieve the field umpire of this duty. The boundary umpires would signal out of bounds by waving a white handkerchief tied to their wrist. They would not get whistles until 1955. Whistles for boundary umpires had been resisted because they were thought to confuse players and spectators. There would be no game against South Australia this year because the South Australian Football Association wanted to vary the conditions in terms of splitting the gate receipts rather than a guaranteed fee. Victoria would not agree and a game against Western Australia was planned instead. In these early years of the VFL, the game was officially an amateur pursuit. While there were rumours of players being paid, nothing was ever proven, or at least not published in the papers. But to limit the movement of some players from club to club, There was a new rule introduced this year that meant a player wanting to swap clubs without a clearance from the original team would have to stay out of the game for three years rather than just one. Kikoro, writing in the Herald, believed the number of those who it was supposed lived on the game may be counted on the fingers of one's hand, a small percentage of the swarm who get their reward in the pleasure of the pastime. But the challenge of dealing with professionalism was not done with yet. More than one article and letter to the paper was written at the start of the season suggesting the payment of players should be acknowledged and brought out into the open. We will be hearing more about this in the coming seasons. 
There were also other controversies in the lead-up to the 1904 season. Carlton had been the first, and so far, only team to appoint a coach. The usual approach was for the players to elect a captain, who would then take on the role of captain-coach, and run training as well as lead the team on the field. Carlton's early years with the VFL had been disappointing, and Jack Worrell had been appointed two years earlier as the club secretary and coach, and had helped the team climb the ladder. But clearly, not all in the Carlton Football Club were happy with the methods or his role. On the 26th of March, the Argus reported on a lively meeting of the Carlton Football Club, with between five to 600 people present. Jack Worrell spoke to the meeting, explaining that as club secretary, he would receive cheques from the opposition clubs for Carlton's share of the gate money. On three occasions, for safety, he had paid the money into his own account and then paid the club the proceeds with his own cheque. This was an established process. There was no dispute about the amounts owed, and the President and the Treasurer knew about the process. The action that was taken, his dismissal, was not that of men. The fact was that he was not a convenient fool and would not always do as he was told. He thanked the crowd for their support, and if they wanted him for the Carlton Football Club, they could have his services. The meeting declared unanimously that the dismissal of Jack Worrell as club secretary was illegal and not in accordance with the rules. A number of the players wrote a letter saying that if the committee did not accept Jack Worrell as secretary, they would refuse to play. The affair came to a head at the football club's committee meeting on the following Friday, where amongst much noise and interruptions from the crowd of Jack Worrell supporters, the committee at first tried to defend their dismissal of him, and then the president, treasurer and other committee members resigned and were replaced, Jack Worrell being returned as secretary. An early example of the passions and turmoil that could surround club administration, Carlton and many other clubs, would see further committee room coups in the years ahead. The season started on the 7th of May. The Herald welcomed the return of King Football with a delightful sketch of the King Footballer on a giant footy cheered on by the supporters. Fitzroy travelled to Princess Park to play Carlton. There was some feeling about the game as Jack Worrell, Carlton's coach, was a former Fitzroy captain and between seasons he had recruited Fitzroy Premiership player Mick Grace to play for Carlton. Despite the predictions of a close game, it turned into one of the most one-sided games in the VFL's history, with the Roy Boys winning 16 goals 12 to just 1 goal 8. St Kilda kept some of their momentum from 1903 with a big win over Melbourne, 12 goals 13 to 5 goals 9. Sadly for the Saints, they only had two more wins for the season and were, once again, wooden spooners. Perhaps the Saints could take some joy in the fact that they did beat Collingwood for the first time and also topside Fitzroy. So, some signs for hope, despite the overall result. Early in April, the Australian Star, a Sydney newspaper, reported that not only had a game between Melbourne and Essendon been arranged for May 28, but that Carlton and Geelong would return for a game in August, and that arrangements had been made for these games to continue for several years. It was to prove to be an optimistic view. On the 23rd of May, the Essendon Football Club began their journey to Sydney for the game against Melbourne, but rather than taking the train, they were sailing on the steamship Kanawa for a two-day journey up the east coast. They were farewelled at the pier by supporters. Melbourne travelled by train. Saturday the 28th of May was very, very wet in Sydney, and only 5,000 spectators turned out to the SCG. The star suggested that without the rain, the crowd would have been 20,000. 
There was loud support from a cohort of schoolboys that had been let in for free. A close game until three-quarter time, Melbourne finished with a rush to win the game, 9 goals 17 to Essendon 6 goals 3. Essendon had a tough couple of games following their defeat by Melbourne in Sydney. They had a bad sea passage back to Melbourne, only arriving on Thursday night, and were defeated by top place Fitzroy on the Saturday, before having to front up again on the Monday for the public holiday round where they fought a close game against Collingwood. An interstate game, a tough sailing trip home, and then two games in three days against two of the top teams in the league, a travel and playing schedule that our modern players would not attempt. The other expansion effort in 1904 was the first interstate game against Western Australia. The depression of the 1890s had seen many Victorians travel to the Kalgoorlie goldfields in search of better fortune. Some found gold and others helped establish Australian rules as the dominant code in Western Australia. On Saturday, August 6, there was a bye with one round of the home and away season remaining. Playing at the MCG, the Western Australians put up a good match, but the Victorians, this year wearing a blue jumper with a gold sash, were five goals up by half-time and maintained this advantage to the end of the game. On the same day, a second VFL team travelled to Ballarat to play a combined Ballarat Association team and were defeated by the locals by three goals, a famous win for the home team. By the end of the home and away season, Fitzroy was on top of the ladder with 10 wins, followed by Carlton on 9 wins and a draw. South Melbourne and Collingwood made up the top four. The three rounds of the sectional games would define who would be in the top four to play off for the semi-finals. As in previous years, the teams were split into two sections, first, third, fifth and seventh in one group, and the teams finishing in even positions on the ladder in the second section. The first two rounds of the sectional games saw a number of upsets. South Melbourne and Carlton lost their first two games, while Collingwood and Essendon won their games. This meant that as teams lined up for the final sectional game, only Fitzroy was certain of making the semi-finals. Only half a game separated Collingwood, South Melbourne, Essendon and Carlton. Whoever lost risked missing the finals. Essendon hosted top place Fitzroy at their home ground on the East Melbourne Cricket Ground where they were on top from the first quarter, holding the Maroons scoreless while kicking three goals. The game was a one-sided thrashing with the same olds winning by almost ten goals. Carlton had an easy win against St Kilda, and Collingwood led all day against Melbourne for a two-goal win. South Melbourne travelled to Geelong and won by 22 points. But it was not enough. Despite finishing the home and away season, two games ahead of Essendon, their two losses in the first two weeks of the sectional round meant they missed the finals by 4.6%. Saturday, September 10, saw the semi-final matches played with 2nd place Carlton playing 4th place Essendon at Victoria Park, while top side Fitzroy played 3rd place Collingwood at the MCG. The weather was fine without too much wind. 25,000 people were at the MCG to see the replay of the previous grand final. Collingwood had beaten Fitzroy twice this season, the only team to do so. In the previous week, Collingwood had a comfortable win over Melbourne, while Fitzroy had been thrashed by Essendon. If that was an accurate reflection of the form, then Collingwood should complete a hat-trick of wins over Fitzroy. But several commentators thought that the Maroons had not been fully committed the previous week, given they were confirmed as finishing on top of the ladder. In the review of the match, the Weekly Times reporter, using the name Rover, made the point that remains true for every season and every game. Kicking is, after all, a most vital matter. In the semi-final, Collingwood missed their chances while the Maroons picked theirs. 
follower writing in the age made the point that if with ordinary shots players as so frequently happens cannot shoot through an open space of 21 feet i call it not bad luck but bad kicking the first quarter was close with fitzroy leading by a goal three goals three to two goals one but then the maroons started to pull away from their bitter rivals by kicking three goals in the second quarter while the magpies only kicked three points Collingwood had the breeze in the third quarter and were expected to make an impact. But although they did kick three goals, the problem was that Fitzroy also scored three goals against the wind by playing a distinctly superior game. Follower reported that Fitzroy were maintaining their pace and quick dashing onto the ball and playing even better against the wind than with it. At three-quarter time, the scoreline had Fitzroy leading comfortably, eight goals six to five goals seven. Collingwood did battle the game out to the end but were beaten by the better team on the day. Fitzroy had some revenge on the grand final loss of 1903 by defeating Collingwood 9 goals 7 to 7 goals 8. Over at Victoria Park, 16,000 people watched Carlton take on Essendon. It was Carlton's second semi-final in a row, while Essendon were returning to the top of the table after a quiet season. It was a close game, the best of the season according to some, but Carlton were more composed than the same olds. Carlton's long kicking and a handball was also better than Essendon's, but there was not much else to choose between the two teams, and both played well into the wind. In the first quarter, Essendon had the wind and held Carlton scoreless, but only kicked one goal, two, for a lead of eight points. In the second quarter, Carlton had the advantage of the breeze and kicked four goals, but allowed Essendon to score three, so when the bell went for half-time, the Blues led by one point, four goals four to four goals three. The third quarter kept the pattern of the team that was kicking into the wind, lifting their efforts, and Carlton actually outscored Essendon two goals one to two goals to hold a two-point lead at three-quarter time with the advantage of the wind in the last quarter. Carlton did most of the attacking, but they were playing the ball around the boundary line and not able to convert their advantage to scoring shots. With three minutes to go, Essendon were three points down, and there was a series of passes that got the ball down to Jack McKenzie, who took a splendid mark over the pack. He had his shot from a difficult angle, and perhaps the wind was against him because the ball went wide across the front of the goal and Carlton cleared it out and then repelled one final push forward by Essendon to hold on to the final bell. The Blues had won by three points, six goals seven to six goals four. They were in their first VFL grand final. The 1904 grand final was the first time there was a football game as a curtain raiser for the big match. VFL reserves were still many years off but this season saw a schoolboys championship match between New South Wales and Victoria. As part of the ongoing push to develop the game in Sydney, the VFL had arranged for the champion school of New South Wales, Petersham, to play Victoria's leading school, Albert Park. Not surprisingly, the Albert Park boys won the game easily. The campaign to get Australian rules established in Sydney had many challenges ahead. For the main game, the umpire would, once again, be Ivo Crap building his reputation as the leading umpire in the state. The first boundary umpires for a grand final were Bert Regg, a former Melbourne player who would be a field umpire in the 1906 grand final, and John Kennedy. Gerald Brosnan would lead Fitzroy again in 1904 as he had in the last season. Carlton's captain was Joe McShane. He'd played 210 games for Geelong in the VFA and then the VFL before moving to Carlton in 1902. A veteran of the game, he would help provide experienced leadership as Carlton moved up the ladder. A 6-foot, 180-centimetre ruckman, he would play 82 games for the Blues, hanging up the boots after the grand final, aged 34. 
Jack Worrell became the first non-playing coach to take a team into the grand final, and it would be against his old team Fitzroy. An all-round sportsman, he had represented Victoria in cricket 65 times, played 11 test matches against England. His footballing career included nine seasons with Fitzroy, captain for seven, and named champion of the colony twice. He had taken the coaching job and club secretary role in 1902 at Carlton. With a focus on discipline, telling his players that drinking and football don't mix, he had raised the team from a cellar dwellers into their first grand final. The players had backed him earlier in the year when the committee had sacked him by organising a spill and replacing the club president and committee and reinstating Worrell's secretary and coach. Now they had the opportunity for Carlton's first VFL premiership. The grand final was on the 17th of September, a fine sunny Saturday with 32,700 people attending at the MCG. The schoolboys game was at 2pm and the main game started at 3.15. The ticket price was now one shilling for standing and two shillings for the grandstand. Double what it had been the previous season. The VFL were learning that they could put the price up and still pack the crowds in. Although allowing for inflation, this is still the equivalent of $8 to $16, so still cheaper than today's grand final tickets. There were some who thought that Fitzroy, having finished top on the ladder, may not make too much effort and allow Carlton to win, because then there would be the challenge game, the extra game increasing the gate receipts to be split between the clubs. It was an era of dodgy deals in cycling and horse racing, so the cynicism is understandable. Or, as the Argus summarised, those who follow suburban racing and cycling are so accustomed to being swindled that they cannot conceive of such a possibility as a straight game. The teams had met twice during the season, Fitzroy thrashing Carlton in the opening round and then winning narrowly in round eight. In that game, Fitzroy had got to a three-goal lead by half-time, but only scored three points in the third quarter and were held scoreless in the final quarter, but managed to hold off a fast-finishing Blues to win by four points. The Argus reported that Carlton had turned over more players than any other club during season 1904. Between 30 to 40 players had been tried. The introduction of boundary umpires meant that the focus was on dash rather than strength. The first quarter saw Fitzroy dominate the play without making a huge impact on the scoreboard. Gilbert Barker had the first score for the Maroons, but a crooked shot meant that it was just one point. Later, some fast play saw Bill Walker, playing in his second grand final in his second season, take a mark right in front, and he scored the first goal of the game. There was some rough play from Carlton's George Topping, who used a foul charge to put Fitzroy's Joe Johnson out of action for some time. Several teammates could be seen warning George Topping, and for a long time he was more watchful than useful, according to the Arcus. As a side note, Topping was known to have a fiery temper, and years later he would be suspended for the remainder of the 1910 season and all of the 1911 season. Surprisingly, he spent 1913 as an umpire for the VFA, but back to the grand final. Fitzroy scored two more goals in the first quarter through Jack McDonoghue and their captain, Jared Brosnan, who took a beautiful mark and kicked truly. Mick Grace, playing against his old teammates, managed to score a goal for Carlton shortly before the end of the first quarter, and when the bell went, the score was three goals one to one goal one, giving Fitzroy a two-goal advantage. But they had been the dominant team. As described by an ex-enthusiast in Punch, it was play reduced to the precision of a machine. Carlton got themselves back into the game in the second quarter. Fitzroy captain Jared Brosnan was concerned enough to send Herbert Milne out of the ruck to be an extra man in the back line. The Blues were piling on the pressure with superior play from Mick Grace at centre-half forward and Eddie Prescott in the forward pocket. 
Soon enough, Prescott got Carlton's second goal. George Bruce, playing on the wing for Carlton, made some fine moves into the forward line, and then he scored the third goal. When the half-time break arrived, Carlton had worked their way back into the narrowest of leads, three goals three to Fitzroy, three goals two. The third quarter saw Carlton striving to increase their advantage and Fitzroy maintaining the pressure. The game was diminished as a spectacle, with players crowding around the ball in a style of play that might be familiar with many modern fans. At one point in the third quarter, there were 33 players jostling, smashing and bumping in one quarter of the ground, and only three players in the clear. Carlton did score, but inaccuracy was to cost them as they added four points, but no goals. Fitzroy made only two moves forward and goaled on both occasions. Observer in the Argus reported that Sam Michael, the East Melbourne batsman, and an old Fitzroy footballer said emphatically, That settles it. Fitzroy were beaten in that quarter. They were confused and they lost all their method. But those two goals will give them a fresh heart. You'll see Fitzroy at their best this quarter. Despite Carlton's pressure and having the ball in their forward line for much of the quarter, the hard fact was that at three-quarter time, the scoreboard showed Fitzroy back in front by eight points, five goals two to Carlton's three goals seven. The last quarter saw Fitzroy Percy Trotter put on an exhibition. At just 21, he was considered to be one of the best players in the league and wearing his distinctive red cap. He showed Carlton and their supporters no mercy. Delighting the crowd with the dash and accuracy of his play, he quickly scored two goals and took the wind out of Carlton's sails. Percy Sheehan, Fitzroy's full forward, scored their third goal for the quarter, and then Ed Neen from the half-forward flank rubbed salt into the wounds with a fourth goal. Fitzroy would be premiers, and everyone knew it now. Carlton, although beaten, did not stop trying, and towards the end of the game, George Topping got their first goal since the second quarter, and then, in the final push forward, and after the bell had rung... Carlton's rover, Arch Snell, did what Jared Bresnan could not do the year before and scored a goal with the last kick of the day. But it was too little, too late. Fitzroy had made up for the narrow loss in 1903 and were premiers in 1904. A dominant last quarter had them 9 goals, 7, 61, to a gallant Carlton, 5 goals, 7, 37. Although Fitzroy were VFL premiers for 1904, there were still some games and controversy to finish off the football season for the year. For the second year, Fitzroy travelled to the country for an exhibition game. This year, they travelled to Ballarat on the Saturday after the grand final to take on the local side. It was a closer game than expected, with the Premiers a goal down at three-quarter time, but they kicked three goals in the last quarter to win nine goals 11 to Ballarat's respectable seven goals five. Carlton travelled all the way to Adelaide for their end-of-season trip to play Norwood, the South Australian Premiers for 1904. But there was a problem, as reported in the leader. The South Australian Football Association declined to grant their approval for the match. The association delegates wanted to punish Norwood for scheduling the game at the Adelaide Oval. There was a dispute between the association and the South Australian Cricket Association, who managed the Adelaide Oval. But from Norwood's perspective, it was the only ground that would hold the expected crowd. The match had been well advertised and was keenly anticipated. The VFL endorsed the game earlier in the week. Between four to 5,000 people attended the game, and although Norwood pushed the Blues in the first half, Carlton were able to raise their standard in the third and fourth quarters to win comfortably, 11 goals 13, to Norwood's 8 goals 8. However, in the following week, the South Australian Football Association, the South Australian Football Association, censured Norwood for breaking ranks to play on the Adelaide Oval. The association 
also expressed regret that there was no rule to inflict severe punishment on the Norwood Club. But there was more drama back in Melbourne, where one of today's leading AFL clubs forfeited a grand final. Richmond was still playing in the VFA in 1904, and due to play North Melbourne in the VFA Grand Final. But Richmond objected to the appointment of the umpire for the Grand Final. The trouble started in the semi-final, where umpire Allen asked to inspect North Melbourne players' boots at half-time to see if the stops were legal. Clearly there'd been some rough play, and the North players had caused some damage with their boots. North refused. But then umpire Allen allowed the game to continue. Although regarded as a good umpire, he was then criticised in his control of the game in the following week between North and Footscray, keeping poor control over the game, allowing too much rough play, and permitting North Melbourne to engage in persistent time-wasting tactics. Having finished on top of the ladder, Richmond had the right to challenge North, and were due to play them in a grand final on the 1st of October, but Richmond would not accept Allen as the umpire for the game. The VFA refused to allow one club to dictate who would be appointed, Richmond refused to give ground, so North were VFA Premiers by forfeit. The association clubs missed out on splitting the gate-takings for the game. Richmond stood condemned for arrogance in the eyes of many, but they felt they had stood up for their principle. Richmond would only play three more seasons of the VFA before switching to the VFL. Despite those controversies after the VFL Grand Final, it had been another successful season for the VFL. Fitzroy were establishing themselves as the leading club of the era and Carlton had made a statement that they were a club moving forward. Join me next time as we explore season 1905 and see if there are any more rule changes. Will Fitzroy be able to defend their premiership? Would Carlton go one better? Or would there be another team making a move to the top? If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave reviews wherever you get your podcasts from. It will help others to find it. If you have any questions or want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au and check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or our Facebook page and Twitter accounts. Thanks and I hope you join me next time.